This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle, and this is the week of May 1st. 2023 we are into may already and we had a returning champion but a different host yes my Bialik is at the helm this week yeah is it because ken is taping masters no because he's no right no i don't know why but it it's it's what it is but yeah ken was taping masters recently i think more recently than uh, these shows were taped. Yeah. It's my understanding that Masters actually just finished taping like not too long ago. Like, like moments ago. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, a, like a week or two, mm-hmm. which normally, as we know, Jeopardy is months out in production. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But before we get to those games, Emily, how are you? Ooh, boy, I'm doing okay. There's a bunch of big family stuff happening, mostly good mostly good family stuff. But, you know, the real news is that the sequel to Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild drops in about a week. <laughs> the real news. <laughs> yeah. We're on Tears of the Kingdom watch. Yes. Apparently. Um, here, yes. So. Yes, we are. I'm still making my way through Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, mm. and I think I will make it in time, although we'll see. Yes. Um, for people who have played Breath of the Wild, I am at three Divine Beasts and like 60-ish Shrines. Sounds like a lot. Yeah, there's 120 shrines. You don't have to do them all, but like every four gives you like another like kind of Mm -hmm. power up. Mm -hmm. Um, And the question is like, how good are you with video games to like do the final boss battle? And like for me, the answer probably is I need like all of the power ups because my, my personal aptitude at video games as a person is fairly low. So probably I need as much support from my character's stats as possible. Sure. Um, I mean, I I am a completionist rather than a speedrunner, so I would just go for all of them anyway. Yeah. I would like to get them all done. I just feel like I'm racing the clock, but I will I'll probably need to get most of them done before I attempt or su- at any rate succeed at beating the game. Yeah. And yeah. it is of course like Harry Potter where you have to read it the night it came out otherwise you risk spoilers and all that. Mhm, that's very true. Probably people get like review copies in advance or something, right? Like will there oh, be spoilers sure. yeah, on yeah, the yeah. internet early? Oh, um, probably. I'm looking forward to everyone in the family encountering Tears of the Kingdom before all of the stuff is out there on the internet. I think I think it'll be fun. You asked how I was doing, and I told you how my video games are, and I'm standing by it. How are you doing? <laughs> I mean, that's often a barometer of how we're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a barometer of how I'm doing, I haven't played any video games since the last time we talked. Mm-hmm. At all. Not even a little bit. Mm. Not, not even like chess on my phone. Oh, that's rough. I know. I know. It's been busy, and I'm in the crunch time now. There is a window approaching where the salary of my current job will stop coming in. Mm-hmm. And I need to have another job in order to make up for that. So that's what I'm working on. And yeah. Other than that, things are going fine. I have three weeks left in the school year. Yay. Hurtling rapidly toward the end. So. Mm-hmm. But that's that's me. Not Not a yeah. lot. 
not a lot exciting to report. So let's talk about Jeopardy. Let's do. We begin on Monday, May 1st. May Day, if you will. When we have the contestants Cyrus Show, a graduate student from St. Louis, Missouri. Mary Helen Schumann-Groh, a retired university administrator from Clearwater, Florida. And Kevin Bell, a trail planner from Silver Spring, Maryland, whose one-day cash winnings total $11,599. And we have the Jeopardy Round categories. Titles with exclamation points. World of Belief. Three-letter words with two vowels. Time to Dance. It's gonna be May. And Doctor who <laughs> may first feels a little late for an it's gonna be may yeah category it is may it is that, may you should have done that on friday when all of the facebook memes were posted mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i mean really saturday sunday were the days for the facebook memes and there's no jeopardy on saturday sunday but you got to get ahead of it by may 1st it's too late yeah capybara doesn't count as meat from a like a, a Catholic religious standpoint, I learned. No. Because it is semi-aquatic. I mean, sure. I'm, of course, not a person who is in charge of making those decisions. Seems like a wacky one, though. Seems like a wacky one. Seems like perhaps maybe people just wanted to eat meat and were looking for an excuse. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, apparently in Boston, the bishop or somebody like gives a special dispensation for eating meat on St. Patrick's Day, which always <laughs> falls during Lent. You got to have your corned beef. It's it's a religious obligation to eat corned beef. Yeah. When St. Patrick, Patrick, when he drove all the snakes out of Ireland, he said, and the corned beef will keep them away. <laughs> corned beef is not actually, it is more of an Irish American food than an Irish food. It is not unheard of in Ireland, but it's not really an Irish thing. And its association with the Irish-American community comes out of the proximity of the Irish-American and Jewish immigrant neighborhoods in like, I don't know, late 19th, early 20th century, something like that. I was looking into it a while back, and that's what I remember learning. Interesting. Yeah. That has nothing to do with anything that they talked about on Jeopardy, though, so... Uh, you're welcome for the tangent that's what we're here for that's what yeah Mm -hmm. the doctor who category wasn't about doctor who it was about yeah i'm sorry about that it's okay i encountered a doctor who question sometime this week but i think it was in learned league it was in learned league i remember yeah it was learned Mm -hmm. league it wasn't jeopardy unless there's a doctor who question in jeopardy that i'm forgetting about not that i'm yeah daily double number one is in it's gonna be may at the $600 level. Kevin finds it. It's pick number 26. He's at 3600 with Mary Ellen at 2800 and Cyrus at 6200 He wagers 2400 which will bring him to 6000 if he's correct, right behind Cyrus. And he gets the clue on May 10th to 11th, 1927. He flew from San Diego to New York City with an overnight stop in St. Louis. And he gets it correct. It's Lindbergh. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Kevin's at 6200 Cyrus is at 6,400. Mary Helen is at 1,800. And the double Jeopardy categories are sitting in with the orchestra, divided islands, high TV neighbor. They tell you the name of the neighbor. You name the show. World of words, better angels, and our nature. R in quotation marks. They struggled with a couple of the orchestra questions. Yes. 
Also with all of the $2,000 clues. Mm, yes, the, that's true. The orchestra ones they did have a, a bit of a time with. Yeah. The $800 clue seems appropriate that it would be a triple stumper. A modern symphony has six to ten players of this. The tenor of the violin family. That's not really true. No, and tonight I'll what? be one of them to help string you along. Cyrus guess what's a fiddle? No. Mary Helen guess what's a violin that was in the clue? No, violin would be the soprano voice. Viola is the alto voice of the mm-hmm. violin family. Let's just yeah. be clear. The, the cello is the tenor voice. Yeah. Just so we're clear. Viola plays in alto clef, like mm-hmm. it's alto, not tenor. But it's also appropriate that just nobody remembers the viola. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I... you feel the same as a violin player. That's the difference between an onion and a viola. Nobody cries when you cut a viola. Yes. yes. I've got literally dozens of those. Okay. I'm just going to go on the record. I love the viola. If it's, only it's, because I have fat fingers and it's much mm-hmm. easier for me to play. Fair enough. Fair enough. Oh, also nobody knew. Well, you know, nobody knew any of the $2,000 level, but Babette Dell in high TV neighbor at the $2,000 level. Babette Dell, parentheses, Sally Struthers. Babette's from Gilmore Girls. Is she the one with the garden? The plants, I don't remember. Oh, gosh, is she? Someone's plants need to be watered, and there is drama around it or something. Yeah. Why do I... I have is never she, actually you know, sat and watched an episode of that show. In, and yet, in my head, it. she was the lady who runs the dance studio, but that's oh, not correct not, at all. Oh, is she not No, I don't I think don't so. Know. I mean, I would trust you if you told me it was, because, like I, I said, I have never actually sat and watched it. It's just always been tangential to my wife watching it. Yeah, Miss Patty runs the dance studio. Mm, yes. I'm going to have to take my card away now. I guess I, I guess I know what my deep dive is going to be on. <laughs> Just kidding. It's not that. Part of becoming an adult for me has been shifting my opinion about characters and shows that I found to be like aspirational when I was a teenager. Mm. And yeah, Lorelai Gilmore is one of those. Uh, mm-hmm. Another Another one is Rent. Ah. Yes. yes, very aspirational. There. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, yeah. There's there, there's a shift that happens sometime in your mid twenties where you go from like we're not gonna pay rent, you're like yeah, to like what? You're, you're what? You're what? I have a family. Um, <laughs> How do I? What do you, I gotta put a roof over these kids' head. What are you talking yeah. about? Of course, I'm gonna mm-hmm. pay rent. Mm-hmm. Daily double number two is in World of Words. It's at the $1,600 level. Also pick number 16. Kevin uncovers it. He is at 8,600. Mary Helen's at 3,800. Cyrus is at 8,800. And he wagers 1,400, which is less than the value of the clue. He gets a clue. French for work. This vowel heavy word is often used for all the works of an artist or composer. And he gets it correct with what is oeuvre. Mm-hmm. A lot of vowels in there. Yeah. Oeuvre. Yeah. And Daily Double number three is also at the $1,600 level, but this one's in Sitting with the Orchestra. At the 25th pick, Mary Helen finds it. She is at 4600 with Kevin at 12 k Cyrus at 7600 She wagers 3600 and gets the clue on xylophone. I'll keep the square dancing going in the hoedown segment of this Aaron Copeland ballet. And she gets it correct. It's Rodeo. Rodeo, right. Mm-hmm. Not rodeo. No. Uncultured swine. Anyway, so at the end of the double jeopardy round, 
Kevin is in the lead at 14,000. Mary Helen's at 9,800. Cyrus is down to 7,600. We have the Final Jeopardy category, 18th century literature, and the clue. The first name of this title character is from Hebrew for devoted to God. His last name suggests he can be easily duped. This was a triple stumper. Mm -hmm. Cyrus wrote, who is Candide? That is incorrect. I guess it fits the 18th century literature category. He wagered everything, drops to zero. Mary Helen wrote, who is Jude the Obscure? Uh, That's incorrect. Wagered 6,000. And Kevin wrote, who is Simple Simon? And made a cover bet of... It's not a cover bet. It's not a cover bet. He covered Cyrus instead of Mary Helen. He did cover Cyrus. I think maybe he looked at Cyrus and just lost track of like who he was supposed to be covering. Yeah, possibly. Because like I don't see why else you would wager to land at fifteen thousand two hundred one. Yeah, it might. He must have had that in mind. Maybe he was like Mary Ellen doesn't know eighteenth century literature. I am so confident in this. Um, it was Gulliver Lemuel Gulliver from Gulliver's Travels. That is the correct response. I could have thought all day and not come up with Gulliver's first name. Yeah, me too. I, I was, was not 100% to... confident that Gulliver was Culliver's last name. <laughs> I was like, maybe it's like Gulliver Smith. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, I've read Gulliver's Travels, and I do not remember him being mm-hmm. referred to as Lemuel. Yeah. But I don't really remember him being referred to as anything, because right. he's like the, the narrator. It's right. don't really talk to him. You know? Yeah. So Kevin wins his second game. Mm-hmm. And on Tuesday, we have the contestants Amanda Hendrickson, a costumer from Highland Village, Texas, Paul Gualpa, an attorney from Rossmore, California, and Kevin Bell, a trail planner from Silver Spring, Maryland, whose two-day cash winnings total $24,398. And the Jeopardy round categories are They Won the Battle, A Junior in Entertainment, Mind Your Grammar, Australian Wildlife, Double Double Letters, and Jepair boarding process. Jepair is an airline that Jeopardy has made up because they don't have enough questions about airlines already. Yeah, apparently. They heard us complaining about it and they were like, let's really lean in hard on that. Yep. The Australian wildlife category missed a real opportunity to talk about the emu Emu war. war Yeah. Yeah. Didn't they have an emu question? There's the day before. I think yeah, they, they did. did. Yes, is the three did. letter words with two vowels yeah. in the Jeopardy round. Yeah. yeah, they did. But a question about the emu war would have been good here. Mm-hmm. Why not? It's always time for the emu war. Mm-hmm. I like knowing grammar facts. I have come to be more of a descriptivist than a prescriptivist, mm. but. I like seeing the clues. I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong with grammar. Although I have a problem these days with aggressive grammar policing. Mm -hmm. Yes, I do too. For me, having worked with students, especially from a variety of backgrounds and cultures and like original languages, it gets to a point where it's like, do you understand what the person means? Mm -hmm. Then why do we have to get so nitpicky about it? Yeah. Yeah. Certainly outside of a school setting, right? There's a case to be made for teachers being picky about grammar, but like... Yeah, like in an assignment, I'm okay. Yeah. If like the purpose is we are going to learn how to use technically correct syntax and grammar in this mm-hmm. assignment, so I expect you to do it. Yes. Yeah. However, if that's not the purpose and that's not the necessity, 
then it just yep doesn't matter. Yeah. And you know where it really doesn't matter is random Facebook comments. Hey, how about that? Correct. <laughs> you know where nothing really matters is in the <laughs> Facebook comments. That's true. That's true. Do you know anything about Ariana Grande um, at all? The $400 clue of double double letters. Ariana Grande is among celebs who keep their tresses under control with this accessory. I mean, Paul guessed what's a scrunchie, which is not a double letter. Is it a, I I have, I don't remember this clue. Is it, is it a barrette? It is a barrette. And and maybe someone can let us know. Is that a song? Is that a thing she does? Is she known for her barrettes? I was like, cool. Ariana Grande and probably millions of women. Here's an article from Vogue in 2019 titled Ariana Grande knows the power of a good hair accessory. Okay, cool. That is so far outside of my lane. Yeah, I guess she is especially noted for frequently wearing barrettes, maybe? Sure. I don't know. Sure. I was just curious if there was, I mean, I'm sure there was a reason for it. It just seemed really odd to point out specifically her. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Anyway. Daily Double number one is in the Australian wildlife category. It is at the $600 level, pick number nine. Paul uncovers it. He's at 2,000. Kevin is at 200. Amanda's at negative 2,200. And he wagers 2,000, all of it, and gets a clue. This creature with a fierce reputation is Australia's largest carnivorous marsupial. And he guesses what's a koala. That's the Tasmanian devil, though. So he drops mm-hmm. to zero. I mean, koalas are mean, but I'm pretty sure they're not carnivorous. No, they? no, they, they eat eucalyptus. eucalyptus. Well, they are a marsupial. But at the end of the Jeopardy round, Kevin is at 3,600. Paul is back up to 4,600. And Amanda is at negative 1,200. Double Jeopardy categories are mythology, nonfiction, eat food, not too much, mostly plants, TV and movie comedies, World Cities, and That's So Extra, with extra in quotation marks. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that they did the whole eat food, not too much, mostly plants category without name-checking Michael Pollan, who originated that phrase. That, you know, mm-hmm. summation of dietary advice. Mm-hmm. It was a fine category. Okay. Yeah. California Pizza Kitchen at Whole Foods offer pizza crust made from this veggie. A cabbage relative. Cauliflower. A cabbage relative. Why? Why have pizza with crust made from cauliflower? Yeah. Just eat cauliflower. Eat pizza. What if you're uh, gluten? Gluten. gluten. What if you're celiac? If if you are celiac, then, you know, do whatever you think is going to work best for you. But I suspect it may not be cauliflower. I don't think anybody feels like cauliflower is the tastiest substitute for a wheat pizza crust but i could be wrong i could be wrong i'm not gonna argue with you on that yeah i feel like i want to talk about the two thousand dollar clue of the mythology category but Mm -hmm. i don't have a lot more to say about it the clue is among greek heroes number one is achilles and number two is this son of telamon who rescues achilles body from the trojans amanda guessed who is hector but hector was a trojan and also dead by then the correct answer is Ajax, and there are two Ajaxes in the Iliad, mm-hmm. Ajax the Greater and Ajax the Lesser. I believe this Ajax is Ajax the Greater, mm-hmm. also called Telamonian Ajax, which I don't know why those stuck in my head reading it in high school, in like ninth grade. 
But the name Telemonian Ajax has always, it has been one of the four things I remember from the Iliad. And I'm like, I don't know why. He's just like a side character. Mm-hmm. I guess what I'm waiting for is like the, you know, Netflix series exploring his contributions or whatever. Yeah. The $1,600 and $2,000 level of nonfiction are both books that I have really appreciated. The $1,600 level, the Belgian exploitation of the Congo region is detailed in This King's Ghost. That is King Leopold II. King Leopold's Ghost is the book. And that was really interesting and troubling. And the $2,000 level, Mountains Beyond Mountains, is a biography of this late physician known for his work in public health in Haiti and Rwanda. Uh, That's Dr. Paul Farmer. That was a triple stumper. And Mountains Beyond Mountains was a good book. And Paul Farmer was a super cool person who did really, really interesting work. So Mm. both worth checking out. One is really depressing and the other one is very inspiring. So, you know, they balance balance out. Nice. I will put them on my list. Yeah. The list just keeps getting longer. Oh, God. It's so long. So easy to add a book and so hard to take one off. I know. Daily Double number two is in mythology at the $800 level, and it's just the second pick. Amanda finds it. She's at negative 800 with Kevin at 3,600 and Paul at 4,200. Later, he was credited with 800 more dollars, but mm-hmm. when she wagered 2,000, Paul was at 4,200. And she got the clue. The theme song to the James Bond film, Goldfinger, mentions this king of Phrygia, and she gets it correct. It is Midas. Mm-hmm. And Daily Double number three is in World Cities at the $1,200 level. Pick number 13, Kevin finds it. He is up to 8,800. Paul is at 5,000. Amanda is at 800. And he wagers 2,000. And the clue is over 10,000 feet in elevation, this South American capital is one of the international cities of peace. And he guesses what is Quito, but that is La Paz, which Mm -hmm. means the peace, which is where you get that clue. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Kevin's in the lead with 14,400, Paul's at 10,200, Amanda's at 2,400, and the final Jeopardy category is medical history. And the clue is, a vaccine against this respiratory illness came out in the U.S. in 1914 and eventually combined with two other vaccines. Amanda got it correct. She had what is pertussis crossed out and then whooping cough. Both are correct. Pertussis is like the scientific name and whooping cough is, you know, mm-hmm. the nickname, <laughs> what it's commonly called. And she wagered just $15, which, you know, sure, I guess I think Paul's in contention, but we're not expecting either contestant in first or second place to drop within range. So that's fine. Paul tried what is tuberculosis. That is not correct. And he's wagered 4202 dropping him down to 5,998. But Kevin got it correct with what is pertussis and a $4,000 wager. Not a cover bet again. Yeah. yeah. Weird. Yeah. Which makes the one on Monday seem maybe less of a mistake. Yeah. Like like, like perhaps it was more intentional, but still not mm-hmm. correct. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that brings us to Wednesday. When we have the contestants, Hannah Wilson, a data scientist from Chicago, Illinois, Dan Chikalski, a project manager from Columbia, South Carolina, and Kevin Bell, a trail planner from Silver Spring, Maryland, whose three-day cash winnings total $42,798. For the Jeopardy round categories, said this literary character, 
that's a good spot for a break. Mixology. It's an anagram category. Aboard the aircraft carrier, the USS, USS in quotation marks, and John C. Riley. <laughs> someday. someday can, we'll can we get an USA. aircraft carrier named after John C. Riley, please? Yeah. It's in the works. Gotta be. I think he needs yeah. to die first. I think that's the need. Yeah. The $800 level of mixology. All of these were anagrams of words that end in ology. So we had a lot of kind of similar looking anagrams. The $800 level was It's About Time, Ooh Glory. And Kevin knew that it was Orology, H-O-R-O-L-O-G-Y. But it looked to me like he froze, realizing that he knew how it was spelled, maybe had never heard how to pronounce it, that he would definitely get credit for saying Horology. Mm-hmm. but that he didn't want to say that on TV and the H was probably silent. That's the thought process that I imagined as he froze and then stumbled over a couple rounds of pronunciation. I mean, it makes sense, yeah. I may be overthinking it, but in his shoes, I think that would have been my thought process. I was like, oh, I feel you. I feel you, oh, friend. Oh, 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 yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> Better you than me. Yep. You know, that literary character category... I mean, it makes sense, I guess, as a Jeopardy round category, but I, I had the thought, you know, the $400 clue, I didn't exactly flunk out. One of the biggest reasons I left Elton Hills was because I was surrounded by phonies. That's Holden Caulfield. Dan got that. And then the $600 clue is a, one of Alex Trebek's favorite things to say. Listen to them, the children of the night, what the music they make. Hannah got it. That's Dracula. And then the $1,000 clue was Elizabeth Bennett talking about Mr. Darcy. I just wondered, like, which one of those books has actually had the most Jeopardy questions? Because yeah. they all have a lot. A ton, yeah. Like so many. It was basically like, have you watched Jeopardy before? <laughs> Here is this category. Yeah, you can answer all of these without ever having read any of these books if you've mm-hmm. just watched a little bit of Jeopardy. Right. Blunderbuss is such a good word. It is. It's the $800 level of the USS. Those were all words with USS in them. So we had Blunderbuss. It's a great word. A plus. 10 out of 10. (laughs) No notes. Daily Double number one is in said this literary character at the $800 level. Hannah finds it at pick number seven. She's at 2200 with Kevin at 1400. Dan's still at zero at this point. And she wagers 2000. And gets the clue, our evaluation of this intelligence data is that Red October is attempting to defect to the United States. And she gets that one correct. It's Jack Ryan. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Hannah is in a solid lead with 10,200. Kevin's at 4,000. Dan's made it up to 1,200. And the double Jeopardy categories are Historic Americans, D Tour with D in quotation marks, There's Gold in Them, Thar Hills, Sax Education, mm-hmm home phones and theater before and after we got kyle's favorite musical at the 800 hundred dollar level there 76 trombones led the big parade celebrating the impossible dream that is music man of la mancha yep God, mm-hmm. that, that would be so bad <laughs> i did a deep dive a while back about a streetcar named desire which showed up at the 1600 dollar level in that category stella and stanley forgo the magnolias and head on over to eugene o'neill's play for some arboreal passion that is a streetcar named desire under the elms mm-hmm. mayam didn't point it out i wish she would have but in 
the $1,600 and $2,000 levels of Saks education. We had an incorrect answer that then was the correct answer on the next one. On the $1,600 level, this Yardbird flew out of Kansas City to become one of Jazz's greatest alto sax players. Dan tried Who is Coltrane. It turned into a triple stumper. That's Charlie Parker. And then the $2,000 level, you may have a love supreme for the album of that name by this great jazz sax man who made My Favorite Things a signature song. And Kevin tried Who is Louis Armstrong. Uh, That's incorrect. Dan gets the rebound. And this time, Coltrane is correct. Yes. Charlie Parker, alto sax. Yeah. Coltrane is a tenor sax player. Louis Armstrong was a trumpet player. Yes. I count myself lucky when I correctly identify who played saxophone. I cannot keep track of like who played which kind of saxophone. And before anybody gets on Twitter and starts yelling at me like I don't know what I'm talking about, I know Charlie Parker recorded an album on tenor, but... Charlie I'm Parker sure that our listeners are <laughs> very conversant in that kind of thing and yes. definitely all caught it. Also, also very combative. Yeah. <laughs> Daily Double number two is in Historic Americans at the $800 level. It's pick number four. Dan finds it. He's at 4,000. Kevin is also at 4,000. Hannah's at 10,200 and he wagers 3,500. I would have just bet it all, but. Yeah. yeah. He gets a clue. As a Supreme Court justice for more than two decades, he was nicknamed Mr. Civil Rights. And he gets correct with who is Thurgood Marshall. Mm-hmm. And Dilly Double number three is in D Tour at the $1,600 level. We, of course, got a Disney question up at the $400 level of that category. Anyway, pick number seven, Hannah finds it. She's at 10600 Kevin's at 4400 Dan's made it up to 7500 Hannah wagers 3000 and gets the clue. In this Old West town, you can pay your respects to Wild Bill Hickok and Calamity Jane. And she gets it correct. It is Deadwood. Indeed. And she just kind of continues building her lead throughout the round. Mm-hmm. So going into Final Jeopardy, Kevin is at 6000 Dan is at 12300 And Hannah is at 22800 But Dan is still within reach. So we get the Final Jeopardy category, business and social media, which is a kind of a, I don't know, a broad topic for this particular clue. More like, I don't know, internet memes. The clue is on Twitter in 2023, this food franchise followed an exact total of 11 accounts that included Victoria Beckham, Mel B, and Herb Alpert. Kevin is not apparently online enough. He said, what is McCormick's? I thought that was a I mean, solid kinda, guess. That is yeah, a spice could, company. It is a spice company. And he, he, he has identified that. that these are Spice Girls and a guy mm-hmm. named Herb. Herb. Yeah. But that's incorrect. And he wagered 5,000. So he drops to 1,000. Dan got it correct with what is KFC? The 11 herbs and spices that they follow. Mm-hmm. And he wagered 12,000. Mm-hmm. It's a big bet. I mean, I think you kind of stuck. You're kind of, I don't know. Yeah. I feel like that makes sense. Yeah. And Hannah also got it correct with what is KFC and wagered 3000 which is enough to keep her above. And she wins the day with a total of $25,800. Mm-hmm. So on Thursday, the contestants are Marie-Claude Dussault, a translator and editor from Montreal, Quebec, Canada. I guess I could 
try to pronounce Montreal the French way, but we're just going to stop there. Warren Grace, a croupier from Lanham, Maryland, and Hannah Wilson, a data scientist from Chicago, Illinois, whose one-day cash winnings total 25800 And the Jeopardy round categories are phrasing, Florida places, a Bible thumping, U.S. facts and figures, magazines in other words, and athletes named for. The $200 level of Bible thumping. When they were in the field, this guy rose up against this guy, his brother, and slew him. He shall name them both. Hannah got it. That's Cain and Abel. On one of my favorite podcasts, there was a they had a a, a bit many years ago on on one episode. Was it my brother, my brother, and it me? It was my brother, my brother, and me. Mm-hmm. Where they were talking about being at like church camp or something, and you know they were talking about the story of Cain and Abel, and one of the brothers was like, you know, I. I got to thinking about it, and it must have been wild for Kane because, yeah, it's the first murder, but also it's the first death of a person. Yeah. So Kane was probably just like, "Hey, man, get up! Hey, man, what you doing? <laughs> what are you What are you doing? What's going on, man? Just get up! <laughs> hey, hey, God! What I so what something happened? I don't know what happened. I think he he's just stopped. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, man." That that puts it into perspective for me. That that story. That's funny. Yeah, that Bible thumping category. There were some tricky ones. There were. I agree. Yeah, most of them were answered correctly. Four hundred dollar level. This stone slinging man also smote the land and left neither man nor woman alive. Hannah got that one. It's David, which I thought of immediately because stone slinging, right? David and Goliath, and then like pause to fact check myself just because we tend to speak positively about David. Yeah, and whether not about he utterly des- massacring people. Yeah, whether he deserves it or not, he tends to be spoken of positively, and I wouldn't characterize that particular quote that way. It is biblical, mm-hmm. but we tend to clean up David's image. Nobody got the thousand dollar level. This first two part epistle says, "Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned." They were looking for Second Corinthians, although two part epistle, I think just Corinthians is correct. You would know better than I would. There's 1 Corinthians Corinthians and there's 2 Corinthians. It's in 2 Corinthians, but... Is 2 Corinthians itself a two-part epistle? I think that it is thought to be a composite of multiple letters, Hmm. but I don't think that Jeopardy contestants would be expected to know that. I think that two-part in this case references that there's two books of the Bible, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Hmm. but... Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure the phrasing on that is quite right. Or maybe it's fully fact-checked and I'm remembering wrong. Maybe. But I th- I suspect that the the phrasing isn't quite right there. Daily double number 1 is in the Florida places category. At the $600 level, pick number 9, Hannah finds it. She's up to 3200 at this point. Warren is at 0, Marie Claude is at negative 600, and Hannah wagers all 3,000. Gets a clue, you can wear your Crocs as you see the gators in this national park established in 1947 at Florida's western tip. And she gets it correct with what is the Everglades. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Hannah is at 13,000. Warren is at 3,000. Ray Claude is at 800. The double Jeopardy categories are novel countries, the Tower of London, science, a special train car, 21st century films 
and abbreviations. Mm-hmm. $400 level of abbreviations was one of those the Jeopardy writers have forgotten that they have specialized knowledge in show business moments. Right. A VDT is one of these modern devices. I think I'm getting eye strain. Nobody tried it. It's a video display terminal. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, okay, then. Yeah. So it's going to be like this. I see. <laughs> okay. Yeah, for real. Yeah. And then all the rest were correctly answered. Right. Uh, $400 were... level was the triple stumper. Yeah. The way it should be. Wild. There's a triple stumper in the special car train at the $800 level. Clue is the rail car named Ferdinand Magellan carried FDR 50,000 miles in two years. His last journey was to this state in late March 1945. Hannah guessed what is New York, which is a fine guess because that's where he's from, except he died in Warm Springs, Georgia? Something Springs, Georgia. Yeah, Warm Springs, Georgia. Yes, so that is that is where he passed. I I liked the novel countries category. Thought that was kind of a fun way to approach a literature category, mm-hmm. and they did pretty well with it. They did miss the two thousand, the basis for a movie, The Whale Rider. Uh, nobody knew that was New Zealand, but Hannah got Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart. That's in Nigeria. Hannah got Siddhartha by Herman Hess. That's India. Hannah got Sally Rooney's Normal People. That's Ireland. Nobody tried the $800 level. Buddenbrooks and The Book Thief both are set in Germany. I don't know Buddenbrooks, but The Book Thief is like a YA Holocaust novel. Mm -hmm. Daily Double number two is in science at the $1,200 level. And Hannah finds this one at pick number two. She is at 13,400 with Warren at 3,000 and Marie Claude at 800. She wagers 5,000 and she gets the clue. This pioneering computer language got its name from its early use in translating formulas. I would have been completely lost, even though I've heard of the answer at some point in my life, but Hannah got it. It's Fortran. 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 At first, I thought she said 4chan, and I was like, what? That's not a computer language. That's that's something else. That's something else entirely. You can't fool me. Yeah. But it was, in fact, Fortran. You're correct. Yeah. And Daily Double number three is in a special train car at the $1,200 level. Hannah also found this one. She found all All three. three. She's up to 21,600. Warren's at 5,000. Marie Claude is still at 800. And she wagers 6,000. Go big. Gets the clue. An epically terrible trip from Buffalo to Westfield, New York, inspired this man to create the comfy rail cars named for him. And she gets it correct with who is Pullman? I answered that question in a deep dive. It's in the back catalog. You did. Yeah. So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Hannah has a lot game with $35,200. $35,200, which is almost two-thirds of the total money that is on the board if the Daily Doubles were just regular clues. Warren's at $4,600. Marie Claude is at $5,600. The final Jeopardy category is bodies of water, and the clue is formed some 10,000 to 15,000 years ago, and with an average depth of only about 150 feet, it's named for a man who sailed through it in 1728. Warren tried what is the Cook Street. That is not correct. He's wagered 4500 and drops to 100 Marie-Claude got it correct with what is the Bering Strait, and she wagered 2601, which puts her at 8201. I think 
maybe attempting to cover an all-in from Warren, but she got her math wrong because he could have landed a thousand dollars higher than that. And Hannah got it correct as well and wagered ten thousand dollars. Nice. To give her forty-five thousand two hundred and the win. Oof! What a win. Yeah. And that brings us to Friday when we have the contestants Brian Alzua a biocompatibility scientist from Minneapolis, Minnesota, Ashwin Fadness, an attorney originally from Hillsdale, New Jersey, and Hannah Wilson, a data scientist from Chicago, Illinois, whose two-day cash winnings total $71,000. It's a lot in two days. That is, that is a lot, yeah. It's more than I won in three days. Is that more than I won in four days? I don't I don't remember four days. It's a lot. Doing very well, Hannah Wilson. Uh, mm-hmm. And we have the Jeopardy round categories. Take Me to Church, Quick Planets, Everything's Coming Up Rose, Slang and Espanol, It's a TV Mystery, and The Great American Baking Show with Ellie Kemper. Mm-hmm. Which I was not aware that there was a Great American Baking Show or that Ellie Kemper was involved. I had watched the American like holiday baking special with baby spice and the, a guy who i don't remember because i didn't know who he was to start with mm-hmm. uh, i remember that one but I, this appears to be just kind of like a really really a more direct transplant of of the show yeah to american soil which i'm i need to watch in about three weeks i'll have a lot more time and feeling there of are, freedom and able to in order to do that there are six seasons There are six seasons of The Great American Baking Show? Well, The Great Holiday Baking Show was the first season. Okay. Apparently. Because Ellie, did in her introduction, did say co-host of the new Great American Baking Show. Yeah. All right. The first two seasons were hosted by Nia Vardalos and Ian Gomez with Mary Berry. Oh, I I think there was something. I think there was one. And then something happened with the the hosts. Huh. Or the judges or something. There was something like real problematic now that i'm thinking about it and i have no idea about any details but i I seem to recall that it was like we have to stop making this like (laughs) oh 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 oh, here we go so season three first two episodes aired back to back as part of abc's 25 days of christmas lineup before being pulled by abc on december 13 2017 following sexual misconduct allegations okay well there it is yeah there it is. So this is uh, maybe enough time has passed and they felt and the, the producers are like, okay, we can do this again with different people. Yeah. Anyway, I did very well in that category. Thanks nice. to the Great British Baking Show. Mm-hmm. For instance, the $1,000 clue, our bakers made this sweet yeast bread that's braided and baked in a loaf pan. And as my co-host Zach explained, takes its name from the Polish word for grandmother. And I knew that that was a babka. Yep, it's a babka. My wife has made chocolate babka. Nice. Inspired by the show. It was very good. I have never ventured into babka making. Although I do like a Trader Joe's babka. I mean, my understanding is if it's a Trader Joe's anything, it's probably good. Yeah. That's that's pretty much true. The $200 clue in that category was the one where we had some trouble uh not surprisingly our british judges pruleth and paul hollywood asked our bakers to prepare this meal lighter than the high one consisting of six victoria sandwiches six mini strawberry tarts and six savory scones 
Ashwin tried what is tea, and Mayim asked him to be more specific. He tried high tea, which the clue had specifically said was not what they were looking for. Low tea or afternoon tea was the correct response there, and Hannah got three pound. Yep. And then we had another BBC show over on the TV mystery at the $1,000 level. On the BBC's Sherlock, this acting pair are the modern-day Holmes and Watson. (laughs) Brian guessed who are Benedict Cumberbatch and Jude Law kind of mixing up the Robert Downey Jr. films and the show. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's, yeah, Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman, Hannah, got it correct. And really, anytime I can bring up Cumberbatch and the Cumberbatch name generator, I will do it. (laughs) Yes. Remind you, just for a little bit of of joy in your day. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Only Murders in the Building is coming up more and more in my Mm -hmm. trivia consumption. Makes me think that I should consider watching the show my wife enjoyed it i did not watch it with her not because i didn't want to i just don't yeah tend to watch things as much as she does yeah fair enough the 400 dollars below that was a triple stumper season one of this series ended with the title team sleuth solving the murder of her best friend lily kane that's veronica mars mm-hmm. we recently watched that show like weirdly recently since that was on a while ago like what yeah 20 years ago yeah um, 20 20 ish yeah <laughs> but it was good and uh turns out mars was also the correct response over in quick planets oh yeah and that's another, right another that's one fun. where we kind of have two of the same yeah a daily double number one is in take me to church at the 600 dollars level and ashwin finds it at pick number nine He's at 2200 Hannah's at 1200 Brian is at negative 600 He wagers 1000 and he gets the clue in 2023. 16th Street Baptist in this city marks 150 years of the congregation, a history marred by a 1963 bombing. He tried Florence, but they were looking for Birmingham, Alabama. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Hannah is at 5800 Ashwin's at 2600 Brian is at 2200 And the double Jeopardy categories are Northern Lands, Stock Symbols, a musical bouquet. Oh, yes, with O in quotation marks. Dunce, dunce, and revolution. <laughs> we had some things we've covered in deep dives come up yes. in this round. $2,000 level of Northern Lands to start with. This man, credited as the first to reach the North Pole, proved that Greenland is an island. Hannah tried to his bird, but we were looking for Robert Peary. Yep. Yeah, with Matthew and we had, It's true. Yeah. And we had Don Quixote come up at the $400 level of dunce dunce, mm-hmm. which makes sense. He is confidently incorrect as he tells Sancho Panza that the cloud of dust he sees comes from an army. It's sheep. Mm-hmm. And in stock symbols at the $1,200 level, not ding, not dong, but TWNK <laughs> is this maker of Twinkies and other baked goodies. That is Hostess. Hannah got that one. And you can find my snack cake deep dive snack in the back catalog cake. also. Yeah. <laughs> snack cakes. No regrets. <laughs> no. Absolutely none. Uh-huh. I don't know if this is how anybody else remembers it. But the $2,000 level of Dunce Dunce was a triple stumper. The clue was, Thersites in this Shakespearean play says Agamemnon has not so much brain as earwax. No one guessed. It's Troilus and Cressida. I don't know the play, but I remember that Troilus sounds like Troy. So if it's a Shakespeare play and there's somebody from the Trojan War, it's going to be Troilus and Cressida. That's how I remember it. 
Yeah, Charlie and Cressida came to mind for me, and then I was like, how do I know that? How sure am I about that? I think that I would have stood there second-guessing myself rather than ringing in were I on stage. Daily Double number two is pick number five. It's a $1,200 level of oh yes, O-H in quotation marks. Hannah finds it. She is at 4,600. Ashwin's at 2,600. Brian's at 3,400. She wagers 3,000. The clue is, in physics, it's the intermolecular force that holds together a liquid or solid. And she gets it correct with what is cohesion. Yes. And yeah, jumps out to a big lead. Yeah. And daily double number three is pick number 12 at the $2,000 level of revolution. Hannah finds this one as well. At this point, she's at 11,200 with Ashwin at 2,600 and Brian at 4,600. And she wagers 2,500 this time, and she gets the clue, ordinal name for the commoners who turned into a revolutionary national assembly in 1789 France. She tried what is the fifth estate, but they were looking for the third estate, mm-hmm. third estate here. Yes. Yeah. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Hannah is at 13,900. Ashwin's at 9,800. Brian is at 7,400. The final Jeopardy category is team names, and the clue is an MLB team got this name in 1902 after some of its players defected to a new crosstown rival, leaving young replacements. Brian guessed, what are the Dodgers? It's it's not a bad guess. Um, Thinking of crosstown rivals and young names, I guess. But that's incorrect. He wagered everything but $2. Ashwin got it correct with, what are the Cubs? Chicago Cubs mm-hmm. wagered everything but two dollars. <throat> so Brian would have they would have tied if Mushroom had also gotten it incorrect. It goes up to nineteen thousand five hundred ninety-eight. But Hannah also got it correct. Hannah is of course from Chicago, so hopefully the Cubs would come to mind and uh, wagered fifty-seven oh one, which is a cover bet. So by only three dollars, <laughs> and we'll come back on Monday. Yeah. Speaking of Monday. Jeopardy Masters begins on ABC. Yes. That is going to be a thing. Mm-hmm. And I bet it'll be very good and entertaining. And I guess we have to decide if we're going to talk about it on the podcast. Ooh, drat. Yes, we do. We do. We'll see. Yeah. Might be a might be a Patreon exclusive. Yeah. Like after the whole thing's done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that might be good. Yeah. But also, this is the end of the week. And we want to remind you that we have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash potentpotables. You can go there to support us financially and help us pay for the operation of this here podcast. You can also get some exclusive content there. I am about as confident as I can be that I will have the quiz questions up this week. Okay. Right after recording. (laughs) You know why I'm so confident? Did you already put them? Because I have it open right now with everything in, and all I have to do is click publish. So all I right. sure oh. hope that. Oh wow! Is, Ooh. I sure hope that I don't screw this one up. Okay. But who knows? I have made other You're mistakes. Gonna break the streak. Past. Yes. Gonna break our streak of screwing it up. So hopefully that will be coming to you. You know, like we literally just said, unless Emily edits it out, uh, we might be doing a Patreon exclusive Jeopardy Masters episode or episodes so 
If you want to get a little bit extra, then you can head over there. Or if you just want to support us financially, that's where you can do it. We absolutely adore all of our Patreon supporters already. Thank you so much. Yes, you have alleviated perhaps more stress than you would believe, Mm -hmm. uh, at least from this teacher's (laughs) mind, as far as operating this podcast for three and a half years now. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So thank you. And of course, if you would prefer to direct your money to things that are a little bit more important, I won't say a lot more important, we uh, have put some causes in the show notes that we feel are worthwhile. Mm-hmm. So, Emily. Yes, we Kyle. We are talking about what? I presume we're talking about Gulliver's Travels. We are not talking about Gulliver's Travels. It was my I thought second I'd say choice. It. I thought I'd say it really confidently, and then it would be so cool if I was right. It was are my we, second choice. Okay. Are we talking about Peter and the Wolf? We are not talking about Peter and the Wolf. Okay. Are we talking about Victoria Woodhull? We are not talking about Victoria Woodhull. Okay. Those were things I considered. But we are going to the Wednesday game, Double okay. Jeopardy, Sax Education. Oh, nice. And the $1,600 clue was this Yardbird flew out of Kansas City to become one of jazz's greatest alto sax players. That's Charlie Parker. It sure is. And I did a jazz history deep dive a while ago now, but didn't really go in depth on any particular person. And I felt that Charlie Parker is really a name that should be known. And Dan guessed who is Coltrane, which was the correct response on the, the next clue. And so I figured, you know what? Why don't I talk a bit about Charlie Parker and a bit about John Coltrane? That way we just kind of knock out the two biggest names, I would say, in saxophone playing. Get a little bit of understanding under our belts. Mm-hmm. I would argue that they are the two greatest saxophone players, at least jazz saxophone players of all time. Mm-hmm. I think it is arguable. You could you could make a case probably for other saxophone players, depending on what criteria you use. But I would assert that Charlie Parker and John Coltrane are... If you're going to pick, they're going to be the ones. So here we go. We're going to start with Charles Parker Jr. Born August 29th, 1920. Died March 12th, 1955 at the age of 35. He was nicknamed Bird or Yardbird. So anytime you see Yardbird or Bird in reference to a jazz player or you know a saxophone player or musician it should immediately make you think of charlie parker and there have been a number of instances throughout american like pop culture history that reference charlie parker as bird or are named in honor of charlie parker which I will talk about in a bit. So the the nickname Yardbird is not just kind of this obscure thing. It was how he was known. He was called Bird. In fact, just to start off with that, the like a biographical film in what, what year? 1988, starring Forrest Whitaker, is called Bird. Hmm. Directed by Clint yeah. Eastwood. It's a good film. Good film. So he was a jazz saxophonist, band leader, and composer. Extremely influential. One of the founding figures in the development of bebop which i'll talk more about what bebop is to kind of bring it back from my jazz history deep dive Uh, but that's what he's known best for 
he acquired the nickname Yardbird early on in his career when he was on the road with the Jay McShan band, which who was a, a band leader out of Kansas City. Uh, and then it was shortened to Bird and used for the rest of his life. He was an icon for the beat generation, personifying the jazz musician as an uncompromising artist and intellectual rather than just an entertainer. So a little bit about him. I'm not going to get like super deep into his life in part because pretty much his whole life was playing saxophone. So he was born in Kansas City, raised in Kansas City, went to high school in Kansas City. His parents were Charles Parker Sr. and Adelaide Bailey. He withdrew from high school in 1935 at the age of 15 and joined the local musicians union, choosing to pursue his musical career full time. So he did not graduate high school. But his, his sweetheart and future wife, Rebecca Ruffin, did also graduate from the same high school. Uh, he had started playing saxophone at age 11. And at age 14, he joined his high school band, where he uh, studied under the bandmaster Alonzo Lewis. His mother purchased a new saxophone around that time. And he began gigging around Kansas City. He learned the basics of improvisation from a young trombone player named Robert Simpson. In the mid-1930s, he began to practice diligently and kind of mastered the improvisational style and developed some of his ideas that would later lead to bebop. Later on in an interview with Paul Desmond, who was a saxophone player of kind of the next generation, Paul Desmond played with the Dave Brubeck Quartet. Parker said that he spent three to four years practicing up to 15 hours a day, which just blows my mind. Like, I... I love music and I, you know, I've spent a good amount of time practicing, but that is unreasonable. He was influenced by a number of the, you know, the big bands of the time. And he learned a lot from the musicians in Kansas City. So Kansas City should also be associated with Charlie Parker. You should make that connection, make that kind of a Pavlov. Kansas City jazz musician should first point you to Charlie Parker before anything else. He and his Childhood sweetheart were married in 1936, which, if you're doing the math, makes him just 16. He then joined up with the Kansas City band of Clarence Musser, and they were traveling along to um, the Ozarks. And in the fall of 1936, the caravan of musicians had a car accident. Parker broke three ribs and fractured his spine. This led to doctors prescribing him opioids for mm-hmm. painkillers and he became addicted to opioids for the rest of his life especially heroin so also if there is another pavlov for you with charlie parker is if there's jazz musician and heroin you should first go to charlie parker despite his near-death experience he went back to the ozarks in 1937 and spent a lot of time there working on his sound using a term i'm going to use here is woodshedding in jazz terminology, woodshedding is when you isolate yourself and you practice, and you work on it. The idea is like you go, you go into the woodshed and mm-hmm. don't come out until you've got it. In 1939, he moved to New York City to continue pursuing his career. He had a few other jobs, but music pretty quickly became his, his main thing. As I was saying, in 1939, he had his breakthrough. He was playing the changes on the song Cherokee, and he kind of had this revelation of how he could improvise in a way that connected chord changes using the chromatic scale that was kind of moving outside of the traditional improvisational practice. And that led to his kind of approach to bebop soloing. 
1940, he returned to Kansas City and continued to perform with Jay McShann, also attend the funeral of his father. He played the Fairland Park in the summer of 1940 with McShann's band, and that was when he was introduced to Dizzy Gillespie. And so the partnership of Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker was really the beginning of bebop and one of the most important partnerships in jazz history. He played with Dizzy Gillespie in Earl Hines' band in 1942 and 1943. And around this time in New York, he joined a group of young musicians playing at After Our Clubs in Harlem, including already Dizzy Gillespie, Thelonious Monk, guitarist Charlie Christian, drummer Kenny Clark. This group of musicians were the, the young new generation who were sort of reclaiming jazz music from the kind of watered down what kind of word should I use for it? Really palatable big band jazz that had had come into vogue through the 1930s as white audiences began to accept a version of jazz that was, you know, not too, I don't know, challenging. And so bebop in the 1940s emerged as a way for the new generation of, of black musicians to reclaim jazz as their music. It was not intended for dancing it was intended as concert music. You sit and you listen, and it was meant to be intellectual, which if you spend time listening to bebop, it is more challenging. It's mm-hmm. a lot of fast notes, a lot of chromaticism, and some people figured out how to dance to it, but bebop dance is very hard. Yeah. Most people don't bother trying. As I mentioned in my other deep dive, from 1942 to 1944, there was a musician's union ban of all commercial recordings, which meant that these early years of bebop, you had to be there to hear it. There weren't recordings. You couldn't, it wasn't spread around. So we don't actually have those very early days captured for posterity. It got a little bit of radio exposure, but you really had to be in New York. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Let's see. In 1945, Parker led a record date for the Savoy label marketed as the greatest jazz session ever. He included Gillespie and Miles Davis, Curly Russell on bass, and Max Roach on drums, who is one of the most well-known jazz drummers, especially from that era. Mm -hmm. This includes classics like Coco, Billy's Bounce, and Now's the Time. A longstanding desire of Charlie Parker's had been to perform with a string section. He was a keen student of classical music, and he was very interested in the music and formal innovations of Igor Stravinsky. And so he engaged in a project that resulted in the album known as Charlie Parker with Strings. In 1953, he performed at Massey Hall, again joined by Dizzy Gillespie, this time Charlie Mingus, Bud Powell on piano, and Max Roach. And these are, you know, uh, some of the last performances of Charlie Parker and some of the last recordings that he put out. But he's playing with the big names of bebop at this time. And then Charlie Parker died on March 12, 1955, in, in the suite of his friend and patron, Baroness Panonica de Königsvater. She was a patron of Bebop, and she's a member of the Rothschild family. The official causes of death were lobar pneumonia and a bleeding ulcer. He also had an advanced case of cirrhosis and suffered a heart attack. All of that is, you know, a result of a lifelong addiction to heroin and alcohol, obviously. Dizzy Gillespie paid for his funeral arrangements, organized a lying in state and a Harlem procession, as well as a memorial concert. Parker's body was flown back to Missouri, according to his mother's wishes. Mm 
So that's his life. I talked a bit about, you know, bebop and the kind of ideals of bebop. I mentioned a couple of his famous albums, particularly Charlie Parker with Strings and uh, Jazz at Massey Hall. There's also a well-known album of Charlie Parker and Miles Davis kind of duetting called Birdsong. That was one of Miles Davis's kind of earlier like features that album comparing that sound his his playing in that album to his later albums when he is the band leader it's very different charlie parker was one of the people who kind of gave miles his first shot so i talked about bebop improvisation a few other well-known pieces of his are barbados ornithology bloom dito there is Scrapple from the Apple, Yardbird Suite. There there are a lot, but those are some names to associate. And uh, yeah, Miles Davis once said, you can tell the history of jazz in four words, Louis Armstrong, Charlie Parker. Mm. Recordings of his later on in like well past his death, I received some Grammy awards in 1974. The best performance by a soloist was on first recordings of his and Grammy Hall of Fame awards went to Billy's Bounce from 1945, the album Jazz at Massey Hall from 1953, the recording of Ornithology from 1946, and the album Charlie Parker with Strings from 1950. He had a postal service stamp issued in 1995. His recording Coco from 1945 was added to the National Recording Registry in 2002 by the Library of Congress. And there are just a ton of tributes. For instance, the club in New York called Birdland is named for Charlie Parker. Weather Report's jazz fusion track Birdland from the Heavy Weather album is both a dedication to Charlie Parker and the club itself. There are lots. And like I said, there's the biographical film from 1988 directed by Clint Eastwood starring Forrest Whitaker. The Charlie Parker Jazz Festival is a free two-day music festival that takes place every summer in the last weekend of August in Manhattan at Marcus Garvey Park. And I think I'll leave it at that. There are so many that I cannot go through all of them. But uh, remember Birdland, remember Bird, associated with New York, Charlie Park with Strings, Jazz at Massey Hall, and uh, just to be clear, alto saxophone. Mm. He recorded some sessions on tenor, which was notable simply because it wasn't what he normally did. Okay, so that's Charlie Parker. Now I'm going to go over to John Coltrane. John Coltrane, John William Coltrane, was born September 23rd, 1926, died July 17th, 1967. So still not very old. He died at 41. He is among the most influential and acclaimed figures in the history of jazz and 20th century music. He was born in Hamlet, North Carolina. His father was John R. Coltrane, and his mother was Alice Blair. He played clarinet and alto horn in a community band in high school, and then he switched to saxophone by the fall of 1940, being influenced by Lester Young and Johnny Hodges, who were the big names of the Duke Ellington and Count Basie bands. His father, aunt, and grandparents died within a few months of each other in 1938, leaving him to be raised by his mother and a close cousin. Shortly after he graduated from high school, they moved to Philadelphia where he worked at a sugar refinery and his mother bought him his first saxophone and alto on his 17th birthday. He took saxophone lessons at the Ornstein School of Music with Mike Guerra. 
1945, he had his first professional work as a part of a cocktail lounge trio with piano and guitar. He saw Charlie Parker perform on June 5th, 1945, and that had a massive impact. In 1960, in an interview for Downbeat, he said, the first time I heard Bird play, it hit me right between the eyes. In 1945, in August, he enlisted in the Navy to avoid being drafted. He actually enlisted on the day that the U.S. dropped the first atomic bomb on Japan. So at that point, he wasn't really in danger of seeing any action. But he trained as an apprentice seaman at the Samson Naval Training Base in upstate New York, and then he was shipped to Pearl Harbor. And apparently the Manana Barracks at Pearl Harbor was the largest posting of African-American servicemen, like in the world. Didn't know Mm -hmm. that. The Navy was downsizing by that time, though. However, like, obviously, the war was, you know over his musical talent was recognized and he became one of the few navy men to serve as a musician without having been granted musicians rating when he joined the melody masters the bass swing band however it was an all-white band so he was treated as a guest performer so that superior officers would not take issue with his participation his first recordings come from an informal session in hawaii with navy musicians immediately after the war he returned to philadelphia and got into the jazz scene there. He used the GI Bill to enroll at the Granoff School of Music, where he studied music theory. He also took saxophone lessons with Matthew Restelli, but stopped when the GI Bill ran out. He then toured with King Colax, and then joined a band led by Jimmy Heath. Going into the 1950s, this was when he really expanded his style and, and did a lot of listening. Coleman Hawkins was getting going at that time, and he was influenced a lot by him. And he was also influenced by the Philadelphia pianist, composer, and theorist Hassan Ibn Ali, who had a big impact on on Coltrane's melodic concepts. Hmm. He played occasionally with Charlie Parker late in the 1940s and into the 50s, as well as Dizzy Gillespie and Johnny Hodges. So these people he was looking up to, he, he got in with them. In 1955, he was freelancing in Philadelphia when he received a call from Miles Davis. Davis had begun building his career in the 1940s, but his reputation and work had been damaged in part by heroin addiction. He got himself clean and was active again, looking to form a quintet. So they joined up together along with Red Garland on piano, Paul Chambers on bass, and Philly Joe Jones on drums. And from October 1955 to April 1957, they recorded several influential albums with this first great quintet. Coltrane also worked with Thelonious Monk later on in 1957 and played in Monk's quartet during that year and the resulting album was Thelonious Monk Quartet with John Coltrane at Carnegie Hall one of the well maybe not best but a well-known album Coltrane's sole date as a leader for the Blue Note album was the album Blue Train released in 1958 Blue Train is a quintessential jazz album if you are a jazz player you have to know Blue Train it's got the title song Blue Train it's got moments notice it's got so many it's got these like real iconic not only Coltrane tunes, but like well-known jazz standards. Uh, Featured trumpeter Lee Morgan, bassist Paul Chambers, trombonist Curtis Fuller, who, oof, Curtis Fuller does so good on that album. In 1958, Coltrane rejoined Davis and really began working on what became his later sound, what John Coltrane really became known with. He stayed with Davis until 1960, during that time also working with people like Cannonball Adderley and Wynton Kelly and Jimmy Cobb. During this time, the Davis sessions resulted in Milestones and Kind of Blue, which are two of the, like I was saying for Blue Train, two of the most iconic albums in jazz history. 
Kind of Blue is one of the best-selling albums in history. I think it still actually might be. I know Thriller holds a certain record. I think, I, I don't remember now. It's either Thriller or Kind of Blue. Kind of Blue is like one of the biggest albums of all time. At the end of that period, around 1960, he recorded Giant Steps with the Atlantic label and formed his first quartet for live performance in 1960, going around New York City as well as other places. He moved to Impulse Records in 1961, where he began experimenting more and more with modal jazz, free jazz, and Indian ragas. So just as the, you know, a few years before the Beatles began being influenced by Indian music, Coltrane was bringing those concepts in. This is where we start to get to the stuff that's a little more weird later on in his career. Like I said, experimenting with free jazz. Modal jazz is less structured. Free jazz is very unstructured. And we get into those these these more experimental albums later on. 1962 to 1965 is when he has his classic quartet with McCoy Tyner, Jimmy Garrison, and Elvin Jones. Elvin Jones. They recorded a number of albums together, including Live at Birdland and Impressions. And later on in the 60s, in 1965 into 1967, he has his second quartet. And this is when we get the Love Supreme album, which is another like quintessential Coltrane album, but very different from his earlier style. It is very reflective. It is very unstructured. And it requires a good amount of maturity to access. Mm. He died of liver cancer at the age of 40 on mm. July 17th, 1967 at Huntington Hospital on Long Island. So, yeah, that's his life. Now, he is absolutely well known for playing tenor saxophone. John Coltrane is a tenor saxophonist. He did some recordings on soprano saxophone. For instance, his famous recording of My Favorite Things is on soprano sax. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, known as a tenor saxophone player. A couple of things. <laughs> he had a religious experience in 1957 that may have helped him overcome his heroin addiction and alcoholism. So much like many of the jazz artists of the time, he got into drugs and lived a, a hard living life. Mm. <laughs> but the liner notes of A Love Supreme states that in 1957, he experienced by the grace of God, a spiritual awakening, which was to lead me to a richer, fuller and more productive life. He was married a couple times. He had a few kids, all of which also became musicians. And I just learned this now. After Coltrane's death, a congregation called the Yardbird Temple in San Francisco began worshiping him as God incarnate. The group was named after Charlie Parker, whom they equated to John the Baptist, and the congregation became affiliated with the African Orthodox Church and involved changing Coltrane's status from a god to a saint. So the resultant St. John Coltrane African Orthodox Church in San Francisco is the only African Orthodox Church that incorporates Coltrane's music and lyrics as prayers in its liturgy. They take it seriously. It is okay. uh, so I'm, I'm not going to get into the African Orthodox Church, but I did not know this existed. And it looks fascinating to learn about. But like, it's not a gimmick. It's not a joke. From what I understand, the, the people of this church, like it, it is what they believe. In 1965, Coltrane was inducted into Downbeat's Jazz Hall of Fame. And Love Supreme in 1972 was is certified gold by the RAAA. In 1997, he was awarded a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. And yeah. That's John Coltrane. 
So I just gave a whole bunch of information about two big name saxophone players. Mm -hmm. But I feel like hopefully that that clears some stuff up, maybe puts them in context. Yeah, definitely. And hopefully something I said out there suggests some listening because good Lord, there are some really great things going on with them. All right. So are you ready for a quiz? Uh, Yes, absolutely. All right. So let's have a quiz. Charlie Parker is known as Bird. Coltrane is known as Train. So this quiz is on birds and trains. Nice. Question number one. Promontory Summit is the location where the Golden Spike was driven, connecting the Central Pacific and Union Pacific Railroads on May 10th, 1869. Promontory Summit is in the Promontory Mountains in what U.S. state? Utah. It is indeed Utah. Yeah. Very nice. I've learned a thing. (laughs) I did not know how to incorporate a a clue there. I mean, I guess I could have just given like Utah facts, but I was hoping that you just would get it. Very nice. Yes, Utah. A lot of times it is referred to as Promontory Point, but Promontory Point is actually a different place than where the Golden Spike was driven, which I learned today looking up information about this question. All right, you have 10 points. Question two. Which former U.S. Senator from West Virginia holds the title of longest serving senator from 1959 to 2010? Throughout his career, he moved further and further away from his racist roots, but is probably most well-known to college students as the guy whose name is on that scholarship that we all applied for. Huh. Longest serving? 1959 to 2010? Is that what you said? Yes. I am not figuring out who this is. I keep thinking Strom Thurmond, but I know he's South Carolina. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say Smith. That is incorrect. Strom Thurmond served in the Senate from 1954 to 2003. Mm-hmm. So not quite as long as Robert C. Byrd. Oh, oh, I should have gone back to the birds and trains connection. Yes. Robert C. Byrd. Yeah. There's, a, there's uh. a college scholarship for, I think, just basically anyone. You can apply to the Robert C. Byrd foundation or, or scholarship yeah he was like a leader in the west virginia kkk when he was young but from what i can tell he genuinely was remorseful and he's quoted as saying like i regret it i apologize for all of that and i have no problem continuing to apologize for it and try to make it right yeah so like good for him for that yeah. Prefer not to have that in the first place. But so, yeah, it's Robert Sieber. Trivia fact there, really longest serving U.S. senator. Yep. All right. Filing that one away. All right. Question three. This is going to be a weird one. Okay. In the original release of Final Fantasy VI Japanese version or Final Fantasy III American version, the character Sabin is a martial artist. A long-running joke among Final Fantasy fans is that in the boss fight against a literal ghost train, Saban is able to use what wrestling move? There are dozens of variations, including Fallaway, Fisherman, Saito, Cobra Clutch, Belly to Belly, and German, but none of them include a movie theater with multiple screens. That was a weird one. Yep. What move? All right. The joke among fans about this character that's a martial artist 
boss fight against a ghost train. There's the theme. Ghost train. That's where it is. Right. right. Yeah, the answer is not train themed. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Movie theater with multiple screens. A movie theater with multiple screens is like a multiplex? Cineplex? I feel like there's some pun here that I should be able to get to. I think I will probably groan when you say it, but I'm not figuring it out, so I will pass. Okay, it is a suplex. Okay. I don't know how much wrestling you know. Okay. It's when you pick yeah. them up and slam them back. I did not know that term, but I do see that plex. That was the best thing I could think of to try to get you there with a different kind of clue. Yeah, well, that's a new term for me. So So anyway, yeah, the yeah. joke in there is that you're fighting a train and you can suplex a train. They actually took that out of like re-releases of the game because so many people made fun of it. Yeah. All right, you're at 10 points. We'll get you back on track. Yep. Oh, maybe. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> are there are uh, there more professional wrestling questions? Or? There are not. <laughs> Question four. Golf math time. What is my sc- <laughs> What is my score if I play nine holes getting six birdies, two eagles, and one albatross? Those are the birds. Yeah. I would need to remember what birdies and eagles are, and then I would need to correctly guess albatross because I'm not sure I ever learned that one. Okay. I think that birdies are one under par. I think that Eagles are two under par, and an albatross sounds bad, so I'm going to assume that's over par. I should have learned the golf terminology. I feel like there's birdie and there's bogey, and one is one under and one is one over, I think. Very, very professional, very high-level trivia podcast here. We're doing great. Should I assume that Albatross is bad and so it's over par? Or should I think these are a set of birds and so Albatross is also under par? I think I'm going to go with that second one. I may be messing things up here. So, all right, going with my assumption that birdies are one under and eagles are two and Albatross is three. That makes 13 under par i'm gonna say 13 under par and you are correct what no i'm not yeah birdie is I one absolutely under absolutely do not deserve any kind of credit for that <laughs> a birdie is one under par an eagle is two under par and an albatross or double eagle is three under par apparently a condor is four under par but that would have to be a par five that you shoot a hole in one on uh-huh <laughs> so unlikely yeah uh, that you're gonna do it hey Look at me. Yeah, you got the points. Nice. <laughs> there we go. I, I, I got the points after like completely embarrassing myself by saying all of the things I don't know about golf. But hey. Well, hey, you're editing this, so nobody needs to know. Mm-hmm. All right. Question five. You're at 20 points. Let's see if all I can right. get you to 30. Okay. It's hard to stop a train is the slogan for the train company. One could say they run hot and cold, but Train has been comforting homeowners since 1913 and is best known for what type of appliances and services? 
Run hot and cold. Part of me wants to say like heating, but run hot and cold. I think that's a plumbing joke. I don't know this company. <laughs> I'm remembering you've had some some home improvement <laughs> things happening. I'm wondering if this is a hard one question for you. <laughs> but uh, maybe, maybe not. Is, is plumbing specific enough? Can I say plumbing? Mm, I think I'm going to say that that is specific enough, but it is incorrect. Ooh, okay. It is HVAC. Oh, it is HVAC. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Furnaces, air conditioning, ventilation. Yep. Yeah. All right. Should have gone with that first instinct. Oh, well. All right. Sorry. No, that's okay. All right. Well, you're at 20 points for the final, and the clue or the, the category is not as tasty as it sounds. Okay. I guess I'd better wager all 20 of them because, like, you know... <laughs> All right, here's your question. Which bizarre bird of the Southern Hemisphere has been called an honorary mammal due to its strange properties such as marrow-filled bones, nostrils on the tip of its nose, and feathers that feel like hair? I think they are still mostly red on the inside, though. Southern Hemisphere, you said? Mm -hmm. Category not as tasty as it sounds. Having missed the correct answer, emu, a while back, I keep thinking emu, but it doesn't fit. Southern Hemisphere, yes. Marrow-filled bones. Could be. Flightless. Doesn't fit not as tasty as it sounds. Kiwi. It could be kiwi. It could be kiwi. Yeah, I don't have a better guess than that. I'm going to go with kiwi. And that's a good call because it is kiwi. <sighs> the kiwi apparently has... Heavy marrow-filled bones. Huh. I did not know that. Nor did I until today. And I'm pretty sure... I don't know. I've never seen the inside of a kiwi bird, but I'm pretty sure it's not green. Pretty sure it's yeah. red. I would think. Well, hey, you got to 40 points. Yay! I got to 40 points. That's yeah. that's nothing to that's be embarrassed not about. Yeah. That's not bad. Yeah. Well, this was fun, as always, even if I did embarrass myself on the quiz a little bit. Um, that is okay. That's fine. It's entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. I hope our listeners were entertained. Thanks, listeners, for being here. <laughs> Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or a review if you would. If you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you have friends who are into Jeopardy, which, you know, I bet you do, you should let them know about our podcast. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. And we'll be back next week with another week of Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Bye.